tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 26 for February of 2018. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave. And in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about our favorite spellcasters on television. And our show topics include a look at two new series, the cyberpunk adaptation Altered Carbon on Netflix and the Parallel World's spy thriller counterpart on Stars. And our interview, which we've been holding on to for a while, is with Catherine Ramdeen of Supernatural. She was in that backdoor pilot for Wayward Sisters, and we're very much excited to share the audio of an interview that we published a while ago. It's still relevant, though, because the guesswork is in the works as to whether Wayward Sisters will get picked up. But I think the response was good. And certainly it was fun to talk to Catherine Ramdeen and have her share the enthusiasm of the cast and the fans for this spinoff to happen. And it's going to be an interesting, not really thematic topic like we've had a couple of times. We've been fortunate enough to have a couple of times in past episodes, kind of jumping all over the place. We actually picked this uh, discussion topic uh, based on some things that are in the news and on the air right now. But as for spoilers, there are spoilers in our segments for episodes that have already aired, especially uh, Counterpart, which has a couple of episodes in the bank, but also for Altered Carbon, which Netflix drops all at once. And I'll be trying not to spoil too much about the ending, but I will be talking about overarching arcs in that series. So just be aware of that. And the interview segment is relatively spoiler free. But if you do need to skip around or avoid certain topics, here are the time codes for today's discussions. Spellcasters 225 Altered Carbon 1956 Counterpart 3521 Supernatural Interview 5351 All right, and our first topic is spellcasters that we have enjoyed on television over the years. And I thought of this discussion topic for right now because of the fact that The Magicians is back for season three, and we didn't uh, have a discussion about that this season, but we have discussed it on previous episodes of the podcast. And because uh, one of the choices that I have on my list for favorite spellcasters deals directly with some news that I'll share when it gets to that point. But uh, did you have fun picking uh, your spellcasters this month, Dave? <laughs> well, well, I did, and I'm I'm a little bit surprised as I reflect on the whole world of magic that do you think it's a byproduct of the Harry Potter phenomenon? I mean, was there something I'm forgetting that hit the market before that? Well, since a lot of our choices come before that, I would think that the inspiration comes from all over the place. But I do think there's maybe a dearth of fantasy on TV these days. And Harry Potter, you would think, would have spawned a bunch of imitators. And some people refer to the magicians as the Harry Potter for grownups. So, yeah, I think there's a little bit of inspiration there. But the spellcasters we've picked here come from a wide range of genres and time periods. <laughs> so I think this will be fun. And, and uh, some of our listeners have a couple that they wanted to share as well. But maybe you guys out in the audience also have your choices. I'll go ahead and start with mine, though, because the first choice that I came up with, Dave, isn't even from a fantasy show. It's from a horror show. And that's American Horror Story Coven which was the name for season three. And in fact, that's the only season of American Horror Story that I watched because I was giving it a try at the time and really enjoyed that particular season. And Jessica Lang, of course, appeared in those early seasons 
as a different character each season. And in this particular one, she is my pick for one of the favorite spellcasters on television. And that's Fiona Good, her character's name there. And she is actually the supreme witch of her generation. Now, did you see this particular season of American Horror Story, Dave? You know, Mike, I've seen the first episode of the first three seasons. And <laughs> for the most part, they're just too gruesome for me. Now, now that said, season three of which you speak wasn't as gruesome as the first two. And I, I, I certainly did enjoy it. I just never got back to it. Right. And this definitely was one of the better seasons. I think if you ask fans of the show, uh, which ones were, were at the top of the heap, Coven is right up there. And Fiona Good was someone who could cast all kinds of spells and will probably highlight some of the abilities that these different spellcasters have. I mean, in this particular case, the Supreme Witch had to do the seven wonders, the spells that basically qualified her for the position. It included telekinesis, pyrokinesis, vitalum vitalis, which is balancing the life force between two different creatures or people, concilium, which were kind of like mind control powers, descensum, which allowed them to go to the underworld, and then divination and transmutation, which are more traditional witchy powers. But Fiona Good was a great character. She had a great character arc in that story where she had to give up her position of Supreme Witch to the next person in line. But great story, a great character, and a great spellcaster in the horror field. All right. Well, my first choice is from a show that I came to late. I, I know you jumped on board probably right from the beginning, and that's, of course, Joss Whedon's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And one of the things I love about Willow Rosenberg, and it seems a lot of these spellcasters, is watching them develop their technique, their abilities as they go from basically a person that knows next to nothing to somebody whose powers have gotten to a point where they're pretty scary. And Willow, played by Allison Hannigan, who a lot of people know from How I Met Your Mother, is the best friend of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And, and when we're first introduced to her, she's this meek, quiet high school student. I think they're high school sophomores when the series opens. And she's a great student, computer nerd, and one of the founding members. If you watch the show, you know who the Scooby gang uh, <laughs> yeah. refers to. But the first spell that she really casts is the one to restore Angel's soul, which if you watch the show in terms of arcs within the show was really pretty important. And even at that point, she still didn't really know what she was doing. But what you love about her and, and the way her character develops is that she has gone from this shy individual who's almost afraid to try things to somebody that's now willing to to really do whatever it takes for her uh, friends. And, and of course, once she meets Tara her confidence begins to grow and she has the relationship there who could of course forget vampire willow, which was uh, the result of a spell that didn't go quite the way it was expected to go. But, you know, I, I just really love her character and, and I love the different permutations we see of her throughout the series. Now that said, I'm about maybe three or four episodes into season five at this point. So they're like sophomores in college. So I'm sure there's some things I still haven't gotten to about Willow, but I've got that to look forward to. 
you got the major part with Dark Willow, and that that's definitely my favorite part of her character arc is when she gets addicted to magic, and then uh, <laughs> it kind of takes her over like the dark side of the Force. Really kind of cool. Yeah, I think probably that's my top pick overall. That 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 first pick of yours, but uh, they're all good on this list. And in fact, I did have to go to the cast of the Magicians, but I had to pick one of the spellcasters from the show on Sci-Fi Network. It's in its third season now, and I'm, I've been reviewing it from the very beginning on Den of Geek. And I had to think over the years, who did I like the best? And I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Julia Wicker, who wasn't the most well-loved character in the first couple of seasons. She's kind of coming to her own now. But it really was uh, a matter of picking someone who was very adept at the finger tutting skills that they use in that show to cast their magic where they contort their fingers into shapes to um, perform the different spells that they need to do. And in particular, because her character was excluded from break bills, which is kind of like the Hogwarts of the magicians, the, the school, the official school of magic, she had to learn it on her own. She had to join the hedge witch community with a notebook full of spells cobbled together from experimentation, internet message boards, and these illicit parties that's just so much cooler how they have to scrap for their spells. It wasn't so cool, of course, that she was raped by a god, but when she shows him mercy in the end of season two, Our Lady Underground, who is a goddess that she was trying to summon, grants her his power. And in season three, she's the only one left that still has magic. And she's learning all about that in the currently airing episodes. So Julia Wicker is my pick for best spellcaster on The Magicians. You know, it's interesting. We have all women on our list. And, and oh, yeah. <laughs> The Magicians is obviously a show where there are some options for uh, male practitioners of magic. Yeah. Uh, unlike you know, some of the other shows. But I guess now that I look at them, they all probably have some males. But not sure what that says about us, but oh well. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, the next character I want to talk about is another show that I'm no longer watching, but it's not because I didn't enjoy it. And that's Once Upon a Time. You and I have talked many times about our involvement covering shows for Den of Geek in the written form and just finding time for all of these shows just becomes next to impossible. But Regina Mills, a.k.a. the evil queen played by Lana Perea, is uh, I just love her character. I mean, if you've watched the show, you know, there's a, I guess we could call it a reality version of the world and that these characters all have a counterpart. Ironically enough, we'll be talking about that in a, in a little bit <laughs> in the fairy tale world. So she is the evil queen from uh, the Snow White story. She's also the mayor of Storybrooke. And, you know, you mentioned with your first character, uh, Fiona, and in terms of what Regina can do, it's almost a question of what can't she do? Yeah, exactly. Because at the beginning of the series, because of the sleeping curse that was placed on the town, you know, her powers were somewhat limited. But then once that got lifted, all the uh, inhibitors are taken off. And I guess I'm also attracted to the fact that she is one of those evil characters who's not quite so evil there's not the possibility for redemption. And of course, we see her do some things that I think by all accounts would be considered good. But this attraction she has to the dark arts, 
She loves to use apples, which, you know, when, when you go to her house, you see right – it's one of the first things you see right there on the table is a big bowl of red apples. Ripping out hearts is, is also something she's <laughs> prone to do. But there's just something about her persona that is just so fun. And, I mean, it is a fun show. It's It's certainly not – like the librarians say, who, who we're going to talk about in a second, where it's so much lighter because once upon a time, I wouldn't say it's light, but it's not overly dark. Is that fair? That's fair. Yeah, it's definitely fair. And I I saw the first couple seasons of Once Upon a Time as well. And I know there have been a lot of spellcasters that have come and gone, witches that have come into the story from various fairy tales, and no one has equaled Regina Mills. So <laughs> I have to agree with you on that choice. But uh, my final choice for the list comes from a show that I haven't seen very much of. I basically just know of it, and I got some help from the listeners on this one. But I did my research, and I decided that I had to pick someone from Charmed, which was a show from a while back here. But there are three Hallowell sisters, and in fact, there are more than that when you take into account different people that left the show and new characters that came on in the later years of the show. But I'm going to have to go with... Piper Hallowell, played by Holly Marie Combs, now of Pretty Little Liars, but she was the middle sister when the show began and kind of shy like Willow was on your list, but she really came into her own. You talked about that evolution where you get to see the powers starting out. And of course, Piper's powers are that of molecular immobilization, which is freezing basically and molecular combustion, which is fireballs and explosions. And she basically explodes her enemies throughout the series. She's constantly blowing up people that, you know, bad guys. But at the very beginning of the series, she was very chaotic with it and flailing her arms about. But as time goes by, she gets more and more skilled at it and can even, you know, do her little explosions so as not to be fatal two people just to kind of make her point known. So she was a little shy and klutzy at first. She gained more confidence, became more badass, And especially once she takes over as the elder sister in the power of three, when Shannon Doherty left the series and Prue, her character died, Piper became the eldest. And so she kind of had to take a stronger role. And, and I think she did that very well. And, uh, you know, that show lasted for a while, but the reason I wanted to bring it up and why this topic exists, like I said, is not just because the magicians is on the air right now, but also because charmed, it was announced way back in the beginning of 2017 that they're doing a reboot, but it kind of just floundered in pilot land, but it just got going again where the, the cast announcements are starting to come out and it's on the table. Now this is a complete reboot. So it's different cast, even different characters, uh, just the same concept, which, of course, if you have a group of three witches, it doesn't have to necessarily just be in San Francisco where Charmed originally took place. So um, like it or hate it, the idea for rebooting is out there and Charmed is on the table for that treatment. So a good choice for the discussion topic this month. All right. Well, the final character we're going to talk about is from The Librarians, one of my favorite shows. And if you don't know The Librarians, they are tasked with acquiring and safeguarding all of the world's magic to keep it out of the hands of evildoers. And I guess what I like about her is, like so many of the other characters, she is rather reserved, but we learn pretty early on that part of it is that she has a 
brain tumor that basically has reduced her life expectancy to a matter of years. So she's living with that over her head, but she's also got these powers of perception. So not magic, but what happens with her is that once she's around the magic, she's tempted to learn how to use it. And I think it's her intellectual curiosity more than anything. She, she certainly does at least to this point, we don't see a dark side of her, but she does have an encounter with Morgan Le Fay, and, and, and certainly a lot of these characters from literature show up during the course of the series. And Morgan Le Fay teaches her to use magic to open doors or portals, if you will. Uh, she has certainly used protective spells at various points, spells to free artifacts that are trapped. Uh, there was one that was trapped in ice crystals that she used a spell to free it. But I think we understand that at some point, the temptation is going to be too great for her and something's going to have to happen to bring her back. Now, we haven't seen that yet, but I just, knowing her character and knowing that the other's recognize how powerful magic is and that of the librarians in the show, she's really the only one that has that desire to learn to use it, you know, much like Willow in uh, Buffy. So knowing in the background, there's that fear that maybe she's going to go too far really adds a lot to her character. And she's just such a wonderful character. She's so upbeat about everything. Even when she had her brain grape, as she referred to it, <laughs> she was still upbeat. And, and now of course that she's had the tumor removed, she's faced with the reality that now she's going to have to cope with old age, which is something she didn't think she was going to have to deal with. So Cassandra Killian, the librarians, they are in season four. Actually, I think season four's finale was last night. We're recording on a Thursday. Yeah, exactly. And it's on the same night as The Magician. So it's kind of a one-two punch. And uh, we did talk to Lindy Booth, of course, on this podcast. And she talked a lot about what Dave just mentioned. So uh, an appropriate follow-up to that interview <laughs> as as the season wraps up. Still waiting to see if there's another season, of course, of that show. But some great people on that list, and I just want to mention what the listeners came up with. Aaron on Facebook also came up with Willow as his favorite spellcaster. Bonita also chose Piper Hallowell. Um, I had forgotten that she had picked someone from Charmed when I was trying to do my research, so it's interesting that we both picked the same sister. And then Linda had a couple of choices from the vault. She loves to to dig deep for the choices that she comes up with. She had Isis which was kind of a Wonder Woman character who could cast spells based on the inhabitant of a goddess inside of her. And that was a great choice. And also a British show in which there was a time-traveling wizard known as Cat Weasel. And that's the name of the show as well for those people on the other side of the pond. <laughs> and of course, Michael Keller chose the entire cast of the magicians. And I had to hone in on one person, but I agree that they're all pretty much really cool badass spellcasters on that show when the magic is still around. <laughs> so thank you very much for the, Oh, oh and I've got one more from Twitter. Angie, who is a caniac, a self-professed caniac also chose Cassandra. So there were a lot of overlapping choices on social media as well. So thanks guys for, for participating in our discussion topic this month, but let's go ahead and get into our show topics. And I've been very excited to talk about this first topic Altered Carbon. We're switching from fantasy to hard sci-fi, cyberpunk, in fact. 
Altered Carbon has 10 episodes on Netflix. They dropped on February 2nd, 2018. Have you gotten very far into it? Have you seen any of them yet? I've seen the first four. First four? Pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the fourth one actually is one of the ones that I was kind of like, eh. It, it kind of dragged a little bit for me at that point. But then it gets going and has some really cool parts after that. But if you're not familiar with the show, it's based on a cyberpunk novel from 2002 by Richard K. Morgan. I think we misattributed it to uh, William Gibson at the end of our podcast last month. And of course, Gibson is another huge cyberpunk pioneer in the field. But Richard K. Morgan is right in there with Altered Carbon. And Leta Calogritis, who's the creator of Birds of Prey and one of the writers of Terminator Genesis, has some genre cred like right dave <laughs> you've watched oh, yeah. birds of prey yes i did so she ran this one so it's it's good to have a female uh showrunner on this particular kind of gritty retro type of show where you know it's not necessarily women being treated equally in the future society you have to kind of remember where the cyberpunk uh genre originates in that sense because it is a little bit uh like blade runner where there's a lot of focus on prostitution and and things that are a little bit in the gutter. And the show does have quite a bit of violence and sex and nudity in it. But, you know, that's par for the course with cyberpunk. And in fact, a lot of the visuals will be familiar to those who are familiar with Blade Runner, right down to the clear umbrellas and the rainy streets. It's a very cyberpunk visual that I think people want to see at least when they're getting introduced to it. Now, Dave, you and I talked about how cyberpunk hasn't really made a strong entrance into television until now. This is the first foray into it. And I think because of those visuals, this basically was an attempt to introduce people who maybe weren't familiar with cyberpunk to the genre. And I think that may have alienated some hardcore fans, especially of the novel, because there were quite a bit of changes that were made to adapt it to TV. But I think it did a pretty good job of introducing this film noir feel or almost like a noir detective feel to science fiction, right? Yeah. Now, I haven't read the novel, so I don't know how closely it adheres. And and to be honest, I don't care. I mean, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Right. We're judging by what we see on the small screen. And I, I think what I certainly notice from viewing the first two episodes with my wife where you're going to either love it or hate it yeah because cyberpunk as it's presented here and i i I mean certainly there are different levels of cyberpunk but as you mentioned blade runner it certainly has that blade runner feel that blade runner look to it it is violent but that's part of cyberpunk you know there is a lot of sexual overtones certainly not undertones they're right there in your face (laughs) but that's cyberpunk that that, you know so you either accept it or you don't and and i get that i mean i'm not a big violence guy but i'm willing to to deal with it for the rest of the story and at this point i I really like it a lot now as i mentioned watching the first two with my wife i've watched episodes three and four on my laptop (laughs) I can see why. Okay, yeah. And and episode four, like I said, did have a bit of torture porn going on. I, I wasn't too fond of that particular one. But it did get a lot, a lot better. And the humor, of course, is what really lightens this up. They have a really good job of this subtle humor that we'll talk about in a little bit. But if, the premise of Altered Carbon, for those who might not be familiar or just need a refresher as they're watching it themselves, the technology has progressed to the point 
where human consciousness can be stored in small vertebra-like discs called cortical stacks, which allow people's consciousness, which is known by the wonderful acronym DHF, Digital Human Freight, allows their entire consciousness to be placed in different bodies, which they refer to as sleeves. Basically, their bodies are disposable. And they just get whatever bodies are available from people like uh, prisoners, for example. And if you're very wealthy, you might have some clones that you can put your consciousness into, but that's not available to the general populace. So basically, as the immortality idea gets introduced into society, the wealthy get wealthier because they're living forever, and also they lose all sense of morality. And that's the society we're, we're dropped into. And Takeshi Kovach, played by Joel Kinnaman of The Killing, has been on ice for over 250 years in prison for being a supposed terrorist, one of an elite force called envoys who have these enhanced senses, intuition that's a little bit more powerful, pattern recognition abilities. And he's been brought back by one of the wealthy uh, meths, as they're called, and Methuselah is what that comes from, the biblical character who lives like 900 years. Lawrence Bancroft, played by James Purefoy, has awoken Kovach to solve his own murder because he was shot with a gun that only he and his wife had access to just before he could make a backup of his consciousness because, you know, the wealthy can afford to have backups. And so killing them is not necessarily permanent, even if you shoot them right in the stack, <laughs> as they call it, when you permanently kill someone. Right. And there is a lot of jargon that takes some time to really get a handle on, but I guess not really that long. No, surprisingly. I kind of adjusted right away and you just kind of take it in stride. And it has some great characters. I mean, in addition to Kovach, we have Lieutenant Kristen Ortega, who is following Kovach closely for some reason at the very beginning of the series. Ortega is played by Martha Higareta of Royal Pains. And she's just kind of a damn the rules type cop, just kind of throws her weight around quite a bit. She's a person who comes from a police legacy. Her father has died Murdered, in fact, but cannot be brought back to testify for himself, as many people in this society want to be able to do, because he's neo-Catholic. And neo-Catholics cannot be spun back up, as they say, <laughs> into new sleeves. So uh, there's the interesting religious background to the story as well, which I kind of like that whole thread. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the scene when she brings her grandmother home, and it, it's this... <laughs> You know, because this was the only body she had available, some skinhead criminal with tattoos all over his body, <laughs> yet it was their grandmother. And everybody, especially the children, just accepted that this is grandma. Yeah, they didn't care. <laughs> yeah, I love that because it was Day of the Dead, which we just saw in Disney's uh, Coco or Pixar's Coco, I guess it was, which had that same idea of bringing your relatives home on the Day of the Dead <laughs> to visit with them. And uh, also, it's a combination of Thanksgiving as well. So it's kind of like this future version of the holidays. That was the good part of episode four, actually. <laughs> I enjoyed that. But there's also the Bancrofts. There's Lawrence, as I mentioned, and Miriam, his wife, played by Kristen Lehman of Ghost Wars, opposite Luvia Peterson in that show on sci-fi. So, but looking very different <laughs> in this particular show. And they kind of show the Kovach and the audience the life of a meth. And Lawrence 
it's discovered has a propensity for strangling women that he pays for sex with and all kinds of depraved behavior at parties where people are fighting to the death. Children are kept in perpetual inferiority to their parents. In fact, the uh, son, Isaac Bancroft, it, it turns out, has some involvement with this whole plot. And that whole thing unfolds as the series unfolds. But, um, you know, they're definitely part of the crime, but it's really just to show us that aspect of society. But I really like the sidekicks the best, I think. We've got Vernon Elliott, played by Otto Asando of Chicago Med, who basically is recruited because he's an ex-military Originally, he's a suspect because he sent a death threat to Lawrence Bancroft, <laughs> but then he becomes kind of a helper to Kovach moving forward when it's proved he's innocent. And his wife comes into play eventually, his re-sleeved wife, Ava. And also they're trying to rescue the Elliot's daughter, Lizzie, who it seems was wrapped up in it somehow as well and has, has uh, damaged personality due to some trauma that she's experienced. So that family is a really cool side note. And then Poe. How did you like Poe, the uh, hotel AI, Dave? Well, I like them a lot. <laughs> and, and when we say that he's protective of his guests, you just have to see the uh, the scene where he <laughs> protects Kovach. But uh, yeah, I liked him a lot. You know, the, the whole embodiment of Edgar Allan Poe and, and his, his hotel is called The Raven. I, I, just, I love it. Yeah, exactly. And the AI community even has a nice little side plot as well where, you know, they're not necessarily benevolent AIs. They're not like take over the world Terminator style, but but they definitely have their own agendas, the the various AIs scattered about the uh, hotel community and entertainment community. But uh, one of the coolest side characters, which actually I think is bigger in the novels, is Dimitri Cadman, played alternately by Tom O'Pennicott of Supernatural and Michael Eklund of Winona Earp. And actually, both of them were in Continuum. So I thought it was really fun to see those two inhabiting the same character in different sleeves. Yeah, no, no question. And very unlikable characters that we like anyway. <laughs> yeah, it drives the story. It gives a little red herring for their plot line, but also uh, leads us to the deeper conspiracy that's going on behind the scenes. And in fact, part of that, uh, which is unfolding through flashbacks and Kovach's deep past. Cause you know, he comes from 250 years ago when meths had not risen to power yet. And so we get to see his sister, Raylene Kawahara played by Daichin Lachman. Always great to see her in any show. And we talked about her being sci-fi royalty. She's got another one, another notch in the belt, Dave. <laughs> yeah. And certainly dollhouse, which was the, the show that I first became acquainted with her, begins to explore this whole idea of storing consciousness. In that case, they called them oh, yeah. wedges. But Yeah, I didn't think of the parallels there. That's cool. <laughs> but, you know, she and Takeshi were raised by abusive parents, which goes directly into what we see unfold about her character. I'm not going to reveal the ending because Dave hasn't seen it yet. But uh, those of you who have seen the series all the way through know how important Daichin Lachman's character becomes in the end. But I really liked the mentoring aspect of Kel Falconer, who is a historical figure, the head of the supposed terrorists that were the envoys. And of course, they're not terrorists at all, but sort of freedom fighters that were trying to prevent the kind of society that Kovach has woken up in. And Kel is sort of a ghostly figure who advises 
Kovach throughout the series, and we see a lot of memories of her. And of course, it turns out that it wasn't just a mentorship relationship that she and Kovach had, but also a romantic relationship that developed between them. And there's some great reveals about her character, and the story kind of ends on an open-ended note of perhaps finding her stack, which might still be out there. And so if they do end up doing a season two, they could explore that further because they do wrap up the story very nicely. And certainly season one could just stand on its own as a mini series of sorts. So I think they probably will go that route unless the ratings are just so amazing that they, (laughs) that they feel like they have to explore it. And the beauty of it is that they can uh, have a completely different character embodying Kovach. In fact, I think Joel Kinnaman has already said he's moving on and he's giving his sleeve back to Ortega anyway, because he's in the body of her former boyfriend, Elias Riker. So (laughs) Elias has to come back and and use that body. So you could have a completely different actor, kind of like in Doctor Who playing Kovach, which I guess that opens up the possibilities quite a bit. But who gets his backpack? (laughs) Exactly. That's on my list of what to discuss next, because the Hello Unicorn backpack has got to be one of my favorite little details in the background. I'm like, what the heck is he carrying that little pink (laughs) backpack everywhere he goes? Do you ever learn any kind of significance to it or... He just picked it up somewhere. Yeah. At the very beginning, he picks up a bunch of drugs to take with him to the Raven and just kind of get stoned after having been dead for 250 years. And he just takes the drug dealer's entire backpack. And that's what, that's what it was. The hello unicorn backpack. But uh, yeah, the humor in the show, it's very subtle, but it's just so nice to have because it can be kind of dark and heavy and torturous at times. So I really like that. The caper style of, operations that team Kovach went on was used to great effect with Poe and Elliot along for the ride. And the fact that we have that episode seven in the middle, I think there was a similar episode in continuum season three, where you get this flashback that can kind of recontextualizes your protagonist. And certainly that was the case in episode seven of this season of altered carbon, where you get to see what happened in the past that, sort of made him who he is. And um, a lot of the things didn't necessarily work totally well for me. The ending, uh, if you read my reviews on Den of Geek, I was disappointed with some of the action hero style cliches that ended up showing up at the very end. But overall, I mean, I think it was a wonderful effort. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
for full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Definitely cannot be dismissed as an introduction to cyberpunk because it definitely did that. And now maybe they can get more innovative and stay away from the cliches because I think a lot of people who maybe read the books were thinking this is a watered down version of altered carbon, but I think it's a perfect intro to the, to the genre. So altered carbon, if you want to check it out, it's there on Netflix for you in its entirety. All right. Well, the second show we're going to talk about is appearing on stars network at this point, And it is called counterpart Three episodes have aired. We're, we're going to talk about the first two. There was a little bit of confusion over whether or not they were going to take a week off for episode three. So we're going to talk about the first two. And unlike Altered Carbon, it does not drop all at once. It is week to week. So you have some time to digest what it is you've seen. It premiered on January 21st, 2018. And there are two 10-episode seasons that were ordered right from the get-go. So we've got 10 episodes season one. We know we're going to get a 10 episode season two. This one was created by Justin Marks. And just looking at his bio on IMDb, this is really his first major project. Yeah. I mean, he's coming out of the gate strong. <laughs> yeah. Now describing counterpart, I don't want to say it's difficult because it really is at its heart an espionage series. So you then have that question, well, where's the sci-fi come in? And that is, of course, as Stars describes it, a mysterious world hidden beneath the surface of our everyday existence. All right, what the heck does that mean? Well, from <laughs> the start and certainly in the first episode, we feel as if we're in a multiverse environment. I mean, would you say that's fair? Well, yeah, but I mean, we don't get a sense of it very early. It's just that things don't seem quite right. Is that what you okay. mean? Well, I mean, we know there are two Howards. For instance, Howard Silk, played by J.K. Simmons, who's one of those actors that most people know him from the farmer's insurance commercials. <laughs> but he's done a ton of voice work. He was in The Closer. But he is the major character or the major characters because he plays himself from two different universes. So the premise, if you will, is that 30 years ago, a Cold War experiment went awry and created a parallel universe and timeline. So in a sense, it's not your traditional multiverse tale, because as I understand it, in the traditional multiverse tale, the multiverses are already there, right? They're not created as a result of some sort of accident. right? And here's where it gets a little confusing. I think I've got it worked out. And in the course of our discussion, you'll tell me whether I'm on something or, <laughs> or I'm not. If we accept that it's 2018 now, that means this event occurred in 1988, right? Sounds about right to me. Or, or thereabouts. All right. So when we try to figure out, because one of the things that we're presented with on a number of occasions with, with a number of characters is the fact that they live the same childhood. Mm -hmm. If they lived longer than 30 years, 
they actually have a shared past with their counterpart. Okay, so here, here's where it gets confusing, and, and let, let's get this out of the way now. So with the two Howards who are, I think, it, let, let's just say they're 50 years old, give or take, right? Okay. So then they were 20 when the event occurred, right? Okay. I'd probably say upper 50s, but yeah. Uh, okay, but just <laughs> round numbers. So then they had a shared 20-year experience. Right, Exactly. So then how do we explain Baldwin and Nadia? In terms of their age, you mean? Because they're not 40. Well, but let's say they're in their 30s because they do have a shared childhood and a shared memory of their father. Right. I'd say up until age eight or nine. So let's call Nadia and Baldwin 38 or 39. But yeah, I agree. That's pushing it in terms of the appearance of the character, <laughs> of the actor. Okay, so, so here's my theory. What I think is they were born around 1988 so that they were born around the time of the event so now they are in separate timelines separate universes and that for the first few years things are pretty much the same and as time goes on the two universes become different as then their experiences become different so when they get to about the age of nine when they both experience their father lying on the train track and they watch him die, then that's the point where one becomes an assassin, one continues with the violin. Yeah. Well, regardless of whether you believe that the the split happened before that and stayed relatively the same or the split happened after that and that's what defines their shared experience, it doesn't really matter as long as they have that formative moment. Because I think one of... Baldwin's biggest tenets is that you can't change who you are. Both Nadia and her have the assassin inside them. It just wasn't revealed for the violin player. And one of the fundamental questions that gets asked, and I think it's Howard that asks it, how did we get to be so different? And in terms of, you know, I'm not sure how you knew to refer to him as Howard Prime. The only reason I know it is because I watch everything with closed captioning on. Oh, and they have it there? Yeah, and it says Prime. <laughs> for me, it was the uh, network literature that had the uh, designation. <laughs> okay. So for the other one, though, it just doesn't say anything. So I've come to call him Other Howard. I just call him Our Howard. <laughs> okay. So Howard Prime is very much a badass. And he's a retrieval expert who's come from the prime side, if you will, to get defectors. But why he's over here now is somewhat of a mystery. Now, he claims there's a power struggle taking place on his side, that there's a hit list that's been put together for individuals on our Howard's side, and that's why he's over here. Whether or not that's true, we don't know. As far as I can tell, moving forward, I've seen a few episodes into the future, and that seems to be true. I don't think there's any obfuscation going on there. Okay. So he brings up this hit list, and there is an assassin from the prime side that's crossed over. And, of course, we learn that's the, the girl that we see in the opening scene, and that's Baldwin. And she's a contract assassin. And her counterpart is, of course, as we were mentioning a few minutes ago, Nadia, who is a classical violinist, uh, symphony level quality and, and, and certainly 
very well known. But one of the things that I'm still not real sure about in that opening scene when Baldwin takes out the two police officers and she gets away with that bag of money and visas. I mean, is that just simply about being able to travel more or less unfettered between the two universes? Uh, I mean, do we learn more about that money, do you think? Well, I think mostly it's just allowing her to travel around in this universe. Uh, So all that money is currency from this world rather than her own. So she was picking it up when when the police caught up with her and she was able to get away with it as well because they talk about it. And this is key, I think. They talk about it as a deal gone bad. One of the police seems to be in on it. And Baldwin has killed everyone at that initial meeting and posed as some innocent woman that was sitting in the shower in order to escape. But in actuality, I think she was intended to kill everyone at that meeting. And that's what exposes the fact that there's some hidden agenda from those on the prime side. Okay. And certainly we learn that there are diplomatic trips taken between the sides, that they have visas, which have a time limit. But one of the things that's so cool about this show, and Howard even vocalizes it, he has no idea what he does at his job. Right. He didn't even know there was a parallel world. There are so few people in even the world governments that know this is taking place. Only this secretive UN style black ops type of operation are privy to it. And you even have to be pretty high up in that organization to know that there's parallel worlds. So yeah, his job is very much just passing coded messages back and forth with no idea of what he's doing. Right. So we assume that guy on the other side of the window is literally from the other side. Right. And he equally knows nothing. That's just called the interface department. Right. Now, (laughs) I have no idea. And again, maybe this will become clear later, although I can't imagine it matters. But why do they all have to change into exactly the same suits? Because they don't want any details being revealed to the other side that could identify the differences between their worlds, such as a fancier watch or a high tech cell phone or (laughs) anything like that. So they're taking out every variable. (laughs) Okay. And and we do learn that there are subtle differences between the two sides that we get that one visual when it moves from one world to the other and that building appears that's Uh apparently only in the one world and you wonder after 30 years are there some perhaps environmental changes are there some political changes that are you know really altering the way the two worlds get together. And as you said, there are so few people that actually know about it that certainly adds to the mystery and intrigue. Oh, and there's definitely things that will come out. Those of you who have seen the third episode know it opens with a an advertisement going on in a, in a movie theater about health concerns in the prime world. So yeah, there's definite differences. The skyline in the prime world is much more built up. But in the other world, here's what's weird to me, Dave, is that the computer technology Yes. In The Crossing is old dot matrix printers and such. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, and I have that. I was going to bring that up later. Uh, okay. I don't know why, but okay, there it is. Now it is important. <laughs> okay. Now our Howard's wife 
is in a coma as the series opens, and he goes to visit her on a nightly basis. and And she's played by Olivia Williams from Dollhouse and the Halcyon. So you know, certainly fans of Dollhouse will recognize her. <laughs> it's a Dollhouse bonanza in this podcast. Yeah, but Howard Prime initially tells our Howard that his wife is dead. So we certainly learn that she is not dead. She's a fairly high ranking agent who is apparently being set up for a murder on her side. And, and well, now she's not being set up for a murder. She's being set up for this rendition order against Howard that, you know, he obviously prevented him from being taken in, but apparently that rendition order doesn't exist. So she was sent to bring Howard in, by some mysterious figure. And now she's wondering who made her look bad and what Howard is really up to. And so that puts her on his scent. Okay. And is she going to be responsible for the four Bulgarians that are, uh, (laughs) that are now dead, but, um, and and what is a rendition? I mean, you know, I, I know what a rendition is. Is it a kill order? Is it to bring them in for questioning? I think it's basically dissolving their ability to continue operating, but, it does have a euphemistic feel to it. And, you know, her department that she's in is retrieval. That's what she does. She brings back people who are trying to defect or running off from the responsibility. So that's her job. I mean, Howard Prime is kind of in special ops with this division two that he's in. And so all, there's all these different departments. There's uh, uh strategy, which is the department that Howard, our Howard wants to get into, but can't get a promotion out of, interface and there's diplomacy the the diplomacy department so there's all kinds of different departments that have these really cool you know bureaucratic names so she's in retrieval and she was sent to retrieve howard prime and it and it backfired on her okay all right well in terms of some questions i mean we hear about the crossing and that's you know I, i think pretty obviously that point where there's an opening between the two worlds. We don't really see what it is. You know what's cool about it, though, and I think the showrunner mentioned this in an interview. If you pay very close attention in episode three, as Emily is crossing between the two, she she gets a visa to head over for the first time. And you can hear like these crackling, almost like bugs in the wall, hissing and popping noises in the crossing. So I'm really wondering, I'm really dying to see the further episodes to find out what's the nature of this connection. How did it happen? And is it like cross dimensional? Is there some kind of uh, mystical element or, or sci-fi element to it that will become clear or are they just going to keep it mysterious? And <laughs> cause I wouldn't put it past them to just leave it as is where it's just, you go through a tunnel and you come out the other side and you're in the other world. That's it. Well, and I can't help but keep thinking, is there a third or a fourth? And Ooh. <laughs> But who controls the crossing? Do they both control it equally? It would seem so at this point. Yeah, it feels like that. Yeah. Okay. Now, I had to look it up, but it was a game I've seen before, but I didn't really know. But is there a significance to him playing Go? several times during the first episode. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's just meant to be very symbolic because it's black versus white, but we don't know who's black and who's white in the scenario. Are the prime world folks villains are our sides villains. And I call it our side. Who's to say that it's our world that we're seeing in the initial scenes. I mean, it, it could be uh, very different from our history because of the fact that 
30 years have passed since this event. So I think we're going to notice some similarities to our world and not, but the go reference is specifically, I think a symbolic one trying to figure out good and bad. And I think that even that game where he says, you know, sometimes you can learn a lot from losing, I think is supposed to sort of indicate where his character might be headed because he's much more willing to lose than Howard prime is. And he thinks that there are some factors that can prevent someone from being good or bad and that you're not stuck in the person that you are. You know, Nadia thinks you are who you are. You can't change things, but environment can change them quite drastically. So I think that's the ongoing debate throughout the series and the the go board, which is also in the opening credits is supposed to symbolize that. Yeah. And, and I guess one of the questions that I have is why, Baldwin attempts to save her counterpart, Nadia, when she went in intending to kill her because Baldwin's friend tells her, you know, you need to take her out so that they don't use her to get to you, which I understand superficially what she means. But what we see of Baldwin, I find it difficult to believe they could use anything to get to her. She seems so cold-blooded ice running through her veins but you know when it comes down to it it's like she's not going to kill her and and that scene where she just pulls off her mask and reveals to Nadia that you know I'm you you're me but of course Nadia has no idea what the reality of the situation is Baldwin does of course yeah and she basically jeopardized her entire mission by showing mercy and can't really carry it further because she's captured by the police and creates this huge mess, which Howard prime for one is very upset about (laughs) that, that it's basically just all gone to crap because once the local police get involved, you have a lot of explaining to do. So yeah, it's an interesting choice that Nadia makes and who among us could say that we would be able to take our own selves out like that. (laughs) Yeah. Now our Howard's world is obviously Berlin and it always seems when we go to the prime side, we see that, Moscow restaurant. So is that just a nod that it's Berlin, but it's, you know, the nod to the Soviet? uh, Well, the occupation of Berlin from the Cold War. Yeah, maybe a remnant of that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think there's, we're probably going to see remnants of the Cold War era because this whole spy thriller has a Cold War feel to it. But instead of being between the US and the Soviet Union, it's between the two parallel worlds. Yeah. And, you know, when you get down to it, when, and it's such a shame that we don't have Nadia around, it, w- it would have been great to see the two women perhaps stay together and Baldwin reveal the truth to her counterpart the way the two Howards now know the truth. But maybe Emily will wake up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. Yeah, it's such a great show. It's going places. You can see that that it's going to be very deep, and I can't wait to see where it goes. So, Yeah, if you haven't checked it out, Stars, you're only a couple episodes behind. you got plenty of time to get caught up. Yeah, I think you can sign up for a free trial just to watch this one series. <laughs> Although there's plenty of good shows on Stars, like Outlander and Ash vs. the Evil Dead. So, you know, there's stuff there. But one show that you can catch on regular network television, unlike the shows we're talking about, is Supernatural. And If you can uh, go through 12 seasons really quick, you can catch up to (laughs) the backdoor pilot of Wayward Sisters and our interview segment with Catherine Ramdeen, even if you haven't seen Supernatural, is introducing a brand new show that you could get on board with that is a potential spinoff. 
So we talked with Catherine Ramdeen about Wayward Sisters, which is a show that will also follow the hunter aspect of life, going after the monsters that haunt us in the shadows. But this is an all-female cast that has been clamored for by the fans for quite some time, and it looks like it might actually come to fruition. But here's Catherine Ramdeen previewing for us the Wayward Sisters backdoor pilot, which aired earlier in January. Hello, Catherine. Hey, how's it going, Michael? Hi, pretty good. Thanks for uh, joining me today. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about anything Wayward, (laughs) though. Well, since the fans of Supernatural have been hoping for a spinoff following Sheriff Jody Mills and those in her care for quite some time, did you ever imagine when you did that first episode, Alex, Annie, Alexis, Anne, that a spinoff was even a possibility? I mean, tell us a little bit about what went on behind the scenes through seasons 9 through 12 that made this Wayward Sisters a possibility. Well, firstly, the fans are the reason that Wayward is is a thing. Uh, They really made it happen. When I did the episode, my very first episode as Alex, I didn't have any expectations that there was going to be anything else. I mean, I like I knew that Alex would still be around because she wasn't killed in her episode. So there was like, uh, I wondered, I'm like, oh, well, maybe what happens with her and Jody, or, you know, but that's just a fantasy type of thing. I, never in a million years would I imagine that there's an entire, well, there, there's a possibility for an entire show around these characters. It's been in the background for a long time. Like the fans, of course, have been going crazy for a couple of years now about it. The artwork that they've done, the forums, going to conventions, Kim and Brian, I know, really hyped it. And it was always a question at conventions. And the few conventions I've been at, too, people just want to know about it. And so I think that it happened so organically, getting these characters together. It wrote itself or something. It's, it was just really easy. <laughs> it must really have a lot to do with the combination yes. of Alex and Claire and Jody. Yeah, yeah, and and the writers uh, like Bob and and Andrew and everyone, they were so excited about it. Like, of course, they'd be like, "That's an amazing idea." Like, I remember talking to Robert Barons years ago and just just being like, "This needs to be a thing." <laughs> and he's like, "Well, I'm a you know I'm a writer, and of course I want this to happen." And and so it was really just the social media movement behind it and all these people saying, we want this to happen. And then, you know, they were looking for another spinoff and they're like, well, let's give this a try. I mean, I guess that's what No, no. Yeah, about. I think it's very uh, an obvious choice. But uh, now Alex is the first wayward sister, so to speak, yeah. that Jody Mills took in back in season nine of Supernatural. So does that grant her any kind of special status within the group, maybe shared with Claire? Because, of course, we've got new people coming in. And do they actually rank higher in the uh, hierarchy, or is there one? Well, Alex and Jody have a very special bond. And I think that's also perhaps a point that maybe sometimes Claire might feel left out as, um, because she, well, she went off hunting. So, I mean, Alex and Jody have this sort of like a mother-daughter bond that's really strong. And I don't know about a hierarchy. I just, well, in, I guess in my mind, I see Jody and Donna as sort of the leaders of the pack, you know, that are most experienced with weaponry and, and taking down bad guys, basically. And then there's Claire that's, you know, self-sufficient. She hasn't killed herself, so she's going out and, and looking for fights, really. And then there's Alex, who, in the group, she 
she basically fights when she has to. Like, I don't think she has a particular affinity for killing things because that's what she's been doing for most of her life is killing people. Mm-hmm. But that being said, she feels so strongly about her family that she's made and these new people in her life that she just desperately wants to hold on to that she'd do anything for them. I mean, if that means she has to pick up a gun and, you know, fight, then she will do it. So as far as like hierarchy, I think that the four younger girls were all kind of learning our own place in the group. And I think that the show would just, be in a great format to expand these characters and develop them into who they are going to be in the group. But it does feel a lot like, well, just see in Wayward, but it feels a lot like a group effort. And of course, out of all the younger girls, Claire, she's the one that knows how to kill things. She has that training. But um, everyone else is really game. <laughs> well, it's interesting too, because you hit the nail on the head there with the fact that you're almost trying to, or Alex is almost trying to make up for the fact that she had such a terrible family by bonding even closer with this one. And uh, she also went through that rough patch in that season 11 episode where she had a boyfriend that was turned into a vampire when her past came back to haunt her. So do you think the writers are going to want to play with this residual guilt for Alex for what she did all those years ago if their series is uh, developed further? Um, I think that's definitely a place to go. I think that it's unreasonable to assume that Alex is okay. I mean, she spent over half her life with these terrible people doing terrible things, and I think she has a long way to go. Um, with the love and support of her family, of course she's doing so much better, but I think that that she, she has a lot of um, internal turmoil that she has to deal with, and she kind of thinks helping her family and doing these good deeds as a sort of redemption, I think, for her past. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think that this will help heal her, definitely. And this is something I've been thinking about, is that this life of being a hunter and and being with a group of women saving people and doing good things, it's for Alex, the life chose her. Like, she she wasn't seeking this out. Like, I know that Claire goes out and she seeks these things, but for Alex, it's sort of like she's a magnet. Or, well, I think she thinks of herself as a magnet for just bad things. And she's like, well, I got to deal with it. Things are going to come my way. And I either need to, you know, take it, take it lying down or fight back. Sort of like a survival thing. She's like, I got to do what I got to do. Well, one of the things that's going to be added to the mix that's not in Supernatural, if this were to become a separate series, it would have its own identity because Patience, who comes in with psychic powers, and then Kaya, who can walk between worlds. What do you think these powers are going to bring to a hunting group that maybe aren't around when it's just Sam and Dean? Oh, my gosh. There's such powerful powers. I mean, for them to be able to hone their skills, I think for the writers, there's just a million more places to go with that. And and I think it being a gift can also, I guess, be a curse, you know, and there's also places to go with it where it can get them in trouble. Oh, yeah. So I think it's just... It just adds more layers, more possible stories to tell, and it's pretty badass. I mean, it's like we're a group of superheroes, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. we all have our own talents, and, and that's just just totally cool. Well, one of the other things that makes it kind of unique from Supernatural, if it were to become its own series, is that it seems like you're just going to be set up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, rather than wandering from place to place. So do you think they'll maybe be going with something happening in that locale, kind of like the Hellmouth and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where 
ongoing stories can be told in that one location? Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, without giving too much away, the, the writers are fantastic, and they know... It's sort of interesting. What it reminds me of is... Um, like, I'm a fan of Star Trek, and watching Deep Space Nine is, is a different story because they're on a space station and they're stuck yeah. in this one place. Exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, but the thing is, when we're all in Sioux Falls, presumably, that just means that we can go so much more in-depth with the relationships that we have between the women and uh, character developments. Like, I, I feel like it would be a different show in that we would just be able to explore these characters more. Um, but that being said, I think there's definitely a mechanism in place that's that's going to make um, Sioux Falls a place a hunter would want to be. So, And that's specifically, you're, you're, you're teasing an element that's going to be in the episode coming up. Right? I am teasing something, <laughs> and I don't want to get in trouble. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, well... It hasn't been very long since your character was last on Supernatural, but if things should be developed further, what kind of path or new developments would you like to see for Alex in the future, like changes or evolutionary uh, development for her uh, growth-wise? Oh, man. Okay, I love doing stunts. Uh, Before shooting the pilot, I was trained, well, technically I was training for about four months, with a personal trainer. And then for the two months before I, we, I was working with the stunt coordinators from supernatural and they're amazing people and I love them. And so I, it's just so much fun to do that sort of action stuff on set. So I would love for Alex to just, you know, right now she, she is inexperienced and she has minimal training, but I'd love for her to grow into that more and to maybe find her own affinities for how she can help the group kick ass. But also, um, Alex, I think, is she's, she's an intellectual. I think her and Patience actually are really going to get along. I think they both love learning things, and um, I think they'll make a really good pair for the stuff that, that has to happen when solving cases or fighting crime. I mean, Sam is in, in Supernatural is, is sort of that role, the researcher and stuff like that. So I think it would be really cool for Alex maybe to explore that talent. Like maybe she could, like this is just me speaking, but I mean, I love computers. Like I love video games, like Catherine in real life. <laughs> and so it would be so great for Alex to maybe explore that and maybe be some super hacker person or something like that. But that's just me just wishful thinking. I, I have <laughs> no idea what they're going to do. <laughs> well, now there was a previous attempt at a spinoff for Supernatural called Bloodlines, which didn't work out. But Wayward Sisters does seem to have some advantages over that idea, including the diversity within an all-female cast. Is that a big part of what excites you about this potential new show? And, and what else do you think will bring in new viewers in addition to diehard Supernatural fans? Okay, well, there's actually a documentary that was made. It's a 15-minute documentary um, featuring a lot of Kim, and it's called, well, I think it's Wayward Documentary. And um, what's just crazy about this entire thing is that for a pilot, is that there is so much anticipation and hype before it even, there was a script. <laughs> yeah, true. So, I mean, with the show coming out, we have that going for us where people just really want this to happen. And as far as attracting new viewers, it's its own show. It's, and it's 
it has, of course, a lot of the, the supernatural elements and themes of family and, and you know, fighting bad guys and, and such. But there's characters, there's a few new characters that we haven't really seen in the supernatural that much. And so I think that just wanting to know those characters, and I think, we're, I think people are just going to fall in love with them uh, and the group in general. So I think uh, I would want to watch the show. I don't know <laughs> how, how, how far that goes or... We'll kind of wait that that holds, but <laughs> and you know it, it it's just a cool show. It's it's got everything in it, and and yeah, the diversity in the cast is just oh my god. That's what I that's what I meant when I was talking about the documentary is that it's so empowering for so many people that really don't have representation on television. I mean, there's one thing that Rachel Miner said in the documentary that that really resonated with me. This show has the possibility to help so many people. Growing up, I didn't, I always was like, I want to be Aladdin, you know, or I want to be the hero of the story, not the, the victim. And so I think that's so great for so many women because they have six heroes to <laughs> choose from that to relate to, and they're all different. They're all different. They all have their own issues. And I, and I think it's interesting also for guys to have that perspective on everything that happens. I think the, the female energy is is different. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's we're all just people. So well, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that's a big part of the appeal. And you know, when it comes right down to it, you know, JAG was a big hit before NCIS spun off of it. And that lasted for 12 years. So there's no reason why Wayward Sisters can't do the same thing. And so I, I definitely wish you the greatest of success with this and, and hope it gets picked up soon. Well, thanks a lot, Michael. It means a lot. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for talking to us today about Wayward Sisters, and we look forward to seeing the episode next week. Awesome. Me too. Like crazy. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Well, it was such a great treat to talk to Catherine Ramdeen about the series, and I think she did a great job of selling the premise and a lot of what she and the other potential cast members of this new show would be able to do. Now, of course, we spoke before the episode aired, so there was a lot up in the air, but hopefully you got to see some of the things that she was hinting at if you caught that backdoor pilot. And it looks pretty cool, Dave. Well, you and I both checked out a couple episodes of Supernatural episodes that her character appeared in. Yeah, and and I just think the dynamic is there, and obviously it's going to appeal to fans of Supernatural, and I just will be shocked if they don't eat this up. I mean, I, I think it's got a lot of potential. I think it's a sure thing. <laughs> so can't wait to see how that ends up. And we'll keep you updated, certainly, uh, if that comes to fruition. But hopefully you enjoyed our discussion topics and our show topics this month. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And as for March, we're still waiting on a few shows to announce their premiere dates before we decide on our topics. But... In the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Plus, we take suggestions for future topics. Just let us know what you'd like us to talk about on social media, or you can send an email to scififidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.